Okay, guys, well, we continue our study through practical theology, and um, I'm going to try today, Lord willing, uh, last week we really just handled uh, one verse, <laughs> so, <laughs> and we're looking at verse uh, Ephesians chapter 4, remember, we're using for practical theology, we're using the book of Ephesians as basically our outline you know, surprise, surprise, we're using the Bible for our outline of practical theology. So in this section, we have all the practical chapters of Ephesians outline, chapter 4 all the way to chapter 6. Chapter 1 to chapter 3 is what's known as the indicative part of the letter. Basically, that is more of the doctrinal part of the letter. It's telling us what is, chapters 4 to 6 is telling us what should be. And so that's where we find ourselves. And today, I just want to talk, continue talking about what this whole section, verses 1 through 16, is all about, which is unity. And I guess we can say unity, of course, in the church, right? And we looked at various aspects of church unity. So if you want to go back there again, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we'll just continue working through this. So today we're going to look at verses 12, um, Actually, verse 13, rather, down to the end of verse 16. So let's, um, let's read this, uh, together here and, uh, and then we'll, we'll continue to add to our list of different ways that the unity of the church is contingent upon what is taught here in these verses. Okay. In verse 13, it says, until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so first, I guess what I want to say is that contributing to this section is that maturity and unity, which that's another part of it, is that we're talking about spiritual maturity. You remember at the very beginning we started talking about practical theology. I went through all these passages that show uh, in the New Testament that our our calling as Christians is to grow. Um, in other words, it's not a passive faith. We have an active faith. We're not called to apathy. We're called to be fruitful. And so we looked at passages like Second Peter chapter three, verse eighteen: "Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Passages like that, obviously, uh, uh, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, that talk about abiding in the word and being fruitful. All of these passages on that, because we're striving for maturity. Uh, that That's really what, once you become a Christian, right, you enter into, if we go back to systematic theology a little bit, you, you enter into the process of sanctification. And that sanctification process is known as progressive sanctification. So in other words, we are growing progressively. How many of you guys have seen Wayne Grudem's chart on sanctification? You've seen me draw it probably a couple times. Sanctification looks like this, right? (laughs) 
the sinless perfection people, right? So, so it's, okay, so then sanctification looks like this, right? Okay. <laughs> That's the antinomians. <laughs> so real sanctification looks like this, you know, maybe on a bad Sunday morning, whoops, you know. But you're trying to go back up. See what I'm saying? The Christian life is a life of peaks and valleys. Um, but as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, I think it's verse 15, where he says, you know, that we lay hold of Christ for the same reason that Christ laid hold of us, because he just got done saying, look, I didn't never attained. So that straight line, Paul says, I've never attained to that. So, and especially to the end point, I've never attained to perfection, but he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on. So every time you're at a low point, you press on again and you keep running the race. And so, therefore, he says, as many as are mature have this attitude, right? And so it is the, it is the mature Christian that has the attitude of no matter what happens, no matter how many times I fall, no matter how many times I have setbacks, I keep going. You see what I'm saying? That's what it's all about. And so that's why we are pursuing maturity. Um, and now I want to talk about maturity. And I guess we can say through Christ likeness, right? Christ likeness. Boy, this marker works great. You know, that's kind of a treat for me up here. Okay. When the markers were good. So, and I say Christ likeness because look at verse 13 again. Until, so I guess we should back them and say, what's the until? Oh, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, uh, to the building up of the body of Christ. By the way, the book of Ephesians is full of long sentences, run-on sentences. That's, you know, kind of comforts me when I write my sermons. It's just a paragraph, like one sentence, you know. Uh, but in Ephesians, you have... Um, multiple examples of lengthy sentences. Do you know what the longest sentence in Ephesians is? If, if, if memory serves me right, it is the longest Greek sentence in all antiquity. You guys hear me? If memory serves me right, and that's kind of shaky, but it is the longest single Greek sentence in all of Greek antiquity. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. That is one Greek sentence in Paul. <laughs> Talk about run-on sentences. Forget it. It's not even running. That's a marathon. You know what I mean? It just goes on and on and on. There's no periods. There's no stops. He just wants you to keep building it's like wave after wave after wave. It's glorious. So this is another one of those aspects where this is long thoughts at one time. Uh, Paul was the first German. You know, Germans are said to speak in paragraph long sentences like if, especially if you study theology like Gerhardus Voss was notorious for this a paragraph is one sentence for him type of thing you know what I mean and it's just like well you, you, sometimes you need that you know you can't really get it out unless you get a long sentence going but that's what we're seeing here it's this incredible in-depth exposition of Paul's thoughts here and that's why there's like all these connections really begins in verse 11, and he gave some apostles, right? Verse 12, four, and then that connection, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, and then verse 13, until. So this is this is what the work of service and the building up of the body is all about, until. So now he adds a temporal element, right? Until, and then he says, we attain. Now, that language there, 
of until we attain is one of the reasons why, right, until we attain, right, that language there is very what? It's sort of because it's temporal and because he's talking about the concept of attaining, right, it's very eschatological in nature. And so what most technical commentaries are saying is that this is this is the Apostle Paul engaging in realized eschatology, where what he's talking about is when we think about think about attaining, when does this happen? Not yet, right? <laughs> but until speaks of a process. So this would be the already. That's right. So the already and the not yet. These little phrases is where theologians get this theology of Pauline thought already not yet it's like we are already going to experience some of the fullness that Paul is talking about but we will never truly finally attain until we arrive in glory right I checked John MacArthur and uh, John MacArthur's commentary right there realized eschatology he says that we partake of this you know um in part, but we will not fully attain until we get to glory, you know. So it's just always comforting to me when I find thoughts like this, you know, reiterated in great minds, great commentaries. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, for example, let me read to you what he said. He says, when the goal is ultimately reached, the body of Christ has grown up sufficiently to match the head itself, then uh, himself, then we will be then will be seen the full grown man, which is Christ together with his members. That spectacle will not fully appear until the day when they are glorified together with him. But the anticipation, or excuse me, the expectation of that day will act as a powerful incentive to spiritual development in the present time. So already, not yet. That's what we're talking about. And so what is this all about? Christ-likeness. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is really simple. We're called to be like Jesus, period, right? Matter of fact, I read a book and it says Christianity is christ and I know what he means by that. He's not trying to exclude the Trinity. He's not trying to be minimalistic. But he's just trying to show how central Christ is to everything. And we can say Christ-likeness, conformity to Jesus Christ, that's what sanctification is all about. right? Uh, being conformed into his image. right? Those kinds of thoughts and ideas. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 I guess we could just leave it at that. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. So the conformity language. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But we with unveiled face, we are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we are being transformed into the same image image by glory uh, uh, from glory to glory may not feel like that right i'm sure that all of us can reflect and look (laughs) we may not even want to look in the mirror but you know what i mean we look into the mirror and we thought boy we are we feel like we're far from that glorious image but that is what sanctification is all about conformity not simply to some abstract standard not simply to conform to the culture of some church or to the standards of some theologian you are being conformed to the ultimate standard, who is Christ Jesus himself, right? He is our standard. He, he, he is, we are his freemen, right? We, are, we, we belong first and primarily to him, right? Any questions, comments on anything like that? I feel like I'm preaching, 
which I don't mind preaching, but, you know, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. I mean, look, this passage just naturally unfolds, right? So maturity through Christ's likeness. And then I wanted to put, you know, theological, watch this now, stability, right? Let's look at, yeah, that's a why. Um, verse 14, as, because here's the thing, we can, we can expound on every one of these phrases until we attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we could, we could argue, well, don't they already have a knowledge of the Son of God? He's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. So yes, of course, but what he, remember, what he's talking about here is direction, trajectory, and increase. Just like he said earlier, right? That your hearts, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, right? To know what is the greatness of the of the inherit of his inheritance of the saints, right? Or what something like that. You know what I mean? What is that? Verse eighteen, chapter one, verse eighteen. Trisha probably has it memorized. I don't know, but verse fourteen says, "As a result." Now, this is very helpful, isn't it? Isn't it helpful when Paul just says it like that? As a result, so that we make no mistake. Like, what is the point? <laughs> right. The point is very clear based on this conjunction. As a result. We are no longer to be children. You see that? See the emphasis on growth and why as Christians we can't just be piddling around, right? We have to actually be going somewhere in our Christian life. We have to have a direction. And so he's, and, and, and then notice this, not as children. And then notice how he describes this. Tossed, we can say not tossed here and there, right? That's what he means. What he's saying is that spiritual children are tossed here and there by waves. And what does he mean by waves? Carried about by every wind. What does he mean by wind? Then he gets specific. Of doctrine. See that? So he immediately goes to the theological. And so that's what I'm saying is that what is a true mark of spiritual maturity is that you become theologically stable. Right? And you're no longer moved around. Spurgeon has a very famous sermon when he preached to thousands of pastors. It's uh, You can find it in uh, his little book, All Around Ministry. And he talks about that over the years he's developed a theological nose. And he can smell the wind of doctrine coming. <laughs> it's usually the young seminary guy. And here he comes and he's got this new view that he's all excited about. And, and Spurgeon like says he's already like learned that from, you know, far away. He can already, he could smell it coming. No thanks. You know what I mean? Like I'll just settle for the old, you know, old is gold, new is, you know, what, what did you say? Pew? <laughs> Few? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's just not gold. <laughs> not always anyway. But you know what I mean? It's, you have to exactly what, Brother Brian was talking about is to have your, 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 your discernment skills sharpened so that you're no longer tossed around. And I've said this before. This happens on different scales, right? This happens on the, on the, on the low evangelical scale of things where, you know, the shack, I mean, I mean, you know, Jesus calling, 
You know, I couldn't believe it. I told you the story, right? I'm going to tell it again. I went to the Christian bookstore and they had a big old, I mean, a table bigger than this. Jesus calling. You know, I'm just like, okay. Like, let's, you know, like, let's go check it out. I picked this thing up. I don't know anything about this book. I picked it up in the first couple pages. This lady is talking about audible, audibly hearing Jesus Christ and having an experience that you can have if you just follow the steps that she's going to tell you and she's going to outline in this book. You too can have that powerful of an experience with Jesus Christ himself. It's just so. Okay, so the lower end of the evangelical scale, you need to be very careful because there's a lot of deception out there, right? And a lot of you came out of a lot of um, false teaching, whether it's hyper-Pentecostal craziness, whether it was word of faith craziness, whether it was, you know, uh, maybe even more heretical craziness. You know, I knew a lady, I took, uh, I remember uh, in our Greek class, remember Trish, we took Greek and one of the sisters in there, she got saved in Mormonism. She was in the Mormon church for a year, saved. And she just thought they're teaching the Bible. She didn't know anything. She's just going. They're nice. They smile at you. <laughs> Everyone's so nice in there, you know. And then she started comparing the Book of Mormon to the Bible. And she's like, wait a minute. Something's wrong. She literally had to escape. And she said, like, the Mormons were, like, stalking her. They, like, hunting her down. Anyway, uh, so you can see there are perils everywhere. But... Don't think that just because you grow in theology or because you learn a bunch of theology that you are now, right, exempt from this. Matter of fact, new level, new devil. So because you learn Greek and Hebrew, listen, let me tell you, plenty of Greek and Hebrew scholars in hell right now. I know them. I mean, when Rudolf Boltmann, who became one of the leading German scholars of the Greek New Testament ended up getting to such an anti-supernatural worldview that he denied the resurrection itself, that guy did not go to heaven unless he repented. You know what I'm saying? So just because you're growing theologically and you can name the names and you, you know the books and you know the categories and you've got the systematics down, that does not, that's, that does not mean that, you, that, you're, that your soul is so immune to error. Um, the new perspective, another very potent academic heresy that's out there trying to give us all a new understanding of justification and that the law court scenario that you and I grew up learning about, you know, God is a holy judge and justification has to do about God saying not guilty, right? Oh, that's all wrong. We need to rethink everything and redefine all of that. And Paul wasn't thinking about forensics. He was thinking about, you know, uh, staying in the covenant community and, oh, it sounds so good. But by the end of the day, guess what? You're right back in Rome. And you just, it's a pee and shell game, right? So what about you guys? Do you guys think of anything like that that's dangerous like that? Yes, sir. Well, for example, yesterday we were out evangelizing uh, downtown Denton, and this young mm-hmm. lady was saying quite a few things correct about the Christian faith. And then something struck me as to continue questioning. And it ended up coming down to that she bought into Rob Bell's book, Yeah. That's actually a good example, uh, Robert, because uh, Rob Bell's NUMA videos 
for really early on in Rob Bell's career, a lot of evangelical churches were playing Numa videos, especially in the youth group and the college age career group, because you know he looks all trendy and hip and cool, and I guess he's got the right glasses or whatever, you know. And and, and so it just became kind of cool in the college group to watch a Numa video. Where Rob Bell shares this like with like abstract art going on, he shares this like devotion. And at the end, I've watched a couple of those, and I'm just like, huh? What's he even talking about? You know, like back to the Bible, please. You know, it's like Piper said once, where is Christ? You know, all this talking going on. But anyway, so that's a good example of how things can creep in. Uh, maybe we can turn to Acts chapter twenty. Um, Acts chapter twenty, because I think this is like the seminal passage on. Just being uh, careful, <laughs> you know, and being watchful and theologically stable and the need for discernment and all of that. Acts chapter 20, verse 25, right? It says, Now behold, uh, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For, this is why he's innocent of the blood of all men. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. By the way, be careful there. You know, innocent of the blood of all men. I ran into a few evangelists. They use this verse to kind of lay a legalistic trip on you. Like you must be evangelizing all men or else their blood is on you. So people walking by on the street, if you don't share the gospel, their blood is on. Okay, That's not what Paul's talking about. Remember, the context is the Ephesian elders. Therefore, the Ephesian churches. You see what I'm saying? So careful with that. Um, but he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, uh, which he purchased with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. That no regard, no regard whatsoever for the spiritual good of the flock and among your own selves from within the church will arise, they will be speaking perverse things to draw away disciples to themselves. So ultimately, it's a lust for the praise of man that drives and motivates these false teachers. They want a following. And at any expense, no matter how much damage they do in their wake, they will try to achieve that. You know what I mean? But what an amazing, uh, what an amazing thing, right? Um, as you think about church history, um, it makes so much sense that the Apostle Paul here, that his focus is on doctrine. That is so unlike what's happening today in evangelicalism, right? The concern is hardly ever doctrinal. When you go into, especially, sorry, but when you go into big mainstream churches, a lot of times the concern, the pastors are more concerned with the purity of their business program, right? Their business, you know, their philosophy of how they're going to grow the church. That is the biggest concern of many ministers versus keeping the gospel pure and educating and equipping the people, the saints, to have discernment. Crazy. But when you think about the early church, this is, this is no surprise that in the early church in Acts, Paul is warning the church against probably everything, above everything else, heresy. Uh, because the first, I mean, I mean, all of church history, but I would say the first four centuries of the early church, it's just one heresy after another that they have to fight. They have to fight Docetism, Gnosticism, Patripatrianism, Pelagianism, you know, uh, all this Sabalianism, which is modalism, oneness, you know, where the oneness theology comes from, the attacks on the Trinity by Arius, you know, all this heresy. And the church, because we are, see, a lot of Christians, they get burnt out on church 
because they encounter all this fighting, <laughs> right? There's all this debating going on, all this arguing, and they just, some people just get a bad taste in their mouth. They're like, I'm out of here. I didn't, you know, I didn't come to the church to make my life worse. <laughs> it's supposed to make my life better. But, and I'm not disagreeing completely with that, but what I am saying is that if we understand that right now the church is in the, what the reformers would call the church militant, right? That we're in a militant stage. This is the state, this is the, this is the time of warfare. This is the time where, you know, uh, where we have to engage in spiritual battles like this. And, and so what people, people are making the, the error of thinking that this is in fact the church triumphant, right? That we have arrived at a triumphant state where everything should be okay. No. How many preachers do you hear telling people everything's going to be okay, <laughs> right? All your problems are going to be gone, right? Are you crazy? What are you talking about? You hear what Jesus said? I mean, pick up your cross and follow me. Those of your own household will be your number one enemy. Hello? Do you read any of that that Jesus talked about? They, 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 they sell you this false gospel, this utopian vision of your life that will never come to pass. And then you get disenfranchised and disillusioned when it happens. And then you get, you get bitter at a false understanding of Christianity and you reject the truth out hand. Mm-hmm. Anybody resonate with that? I mean, I'm getting a lot of groans and moans, but I don't know. If <laughs> <laughs> you think of anything, Cameron? Or I mean, uh, uh, Landon, that comes to mind? Okay, next. What's with the pagans at Denton? I have no idea. Uh, it's a hub. They're popular in Denton. <laughs> but he had a false understanding of Christianity that that God owed him the prosperity gospel. Mm. Why Why would God take my mother? Why would God make me homeless? Why would God have, would have me without a job? If God is so good, he should give me all these things. Mm. Yeah. And also sin, you know, like sin is to blame for that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's right. I think that what you don't I think what, what you don't ever get in like the false people who preach preach of the false gospel is um people never hear the whole thing. You know, so they never actually hear the fact that sin has consequences to it, uh, that they are a sinner, but mm-hmm. the gospel usually comes in such a way that it exalts who you are. And it exalts mm. your, your value and all of these different things. And then when you come into the church, you know what I'm saying? You mm-hmm. expect to be treated in such a way as, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, in a, in a morbid, you know, just kind of a distorted way. Okay. Or, um, or maybe, um, you know, you never, you just, you never hear the, you just never hear the fact that you are a sinner, you know, right. and that you don't deserve any of these It's things. like consumer driven. It is. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, um, it reminds me of Jeremiah. What's that verse in Jeremiah? I think it's chapter 4 where Jeremiah says, you know, the priests and the prophets, they, they prophesy falsely and my people love to have it so. Where it's become the ultimate perversion of over and under. The shepherds are false and the people want false shepherds. I, I'm convinced some churches are in that place now. You know what I mean? They, they want to be under false theology. They don't want a true shepherd. You know, it's like they told the, who was it, Elijah, prophesy smooth things, you know, don't give us the hard word. Yes, sir. Brian, I thought you had your hand up. Oh. Um, Peter, can you, can you 
Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Amen. I mean, the Bible tells us, you know, First John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, is in the lap of the wicked one. You know what I mean? So we, <laughs> we're living in a world that is dominated by a satanic influence. And then we expect for everything to just be hunky dory. It's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Second uh, Thessalonians um, chapter two teaches something where it says um, in verse ten, mm-hmm. it was all wicked deception. Well, I'm sorry, verse uh, nine. Mm-hmm. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Mm, amen. Very powerful uh, passage, right? Because Paul is careful there to point out that it's not just that they didn't know the truth, they didn't love the truth, right? How many people have you met that say, oh, I know, I know all that. I, I know the gospel. I know about Christ. I know, I know what you're talking about, right? I grew up in the church, right? But they don't love the truth, right? That You can't fake love. You, you either love the gospel or you don't, you know what I mean? And if you don't genuinely love the gospel, you really don't want to live your life for it. You know what I mean? Your ambitions are not going to be there. You're going to have ambitions that are going to be idolatrous at some point. It's going to be manifested very quickly who you really love, you know, so that's a good verse. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Yeah, so... um Anything else on that? I mean, that's kind of a big deal. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Mm. <laughs> and she has an amazing eternal perspective on trials. That's great. Amen. Amen to that. So, you know, we can talk about 
maturity coming through stability. I would say the other the other thing too is that um, we also have to, and I know this is kind of a kind of a played out word, but um, having a balance. And I see that balance if you look at verse fifteen because it says, "Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him." who is the head, even Christ. So I see two different aspects there. I see a balance in our approach to truth, and I see a balance in our application of truth. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by our application of truth. But first, a balance in our approach to truth. I just felt the need to say that because notice that Paul qualifies it. We speak the truth to one another, but it has to be in love, right? And I thought that was so masterful for him in this long sentence again, right, to, to qualify little statements like that, that it's not just about speaking the truth. Uh, I can honestly say there was a time in my Christian life that, and I haven't attained, but that I did more speaking the truth, uh, and I don't care who what happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just speak the truth whether you like it or not. You know what I mean? I think I still have a little of that edgy stuff in there. But, you know, but now I try to be more sensitive and I try to make sure that I do it in from a loving disposition. It's not easy. You know what I mean? And, 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 and remember, this is not compromise, right? This is truth and love. And so if you fall on the scale of, well, you're so loving that you fail to tell the truth, then that's not real love. You know what I mean? So you can be loving, and in the name of love, and you say, well, you're just being loving, so you're overlooking this or that. But true love warns. You know what I mean? True love admonishes. I mean, you love your children so much. You love them enough to confront them, to discipline them, to to not let them get away with error, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that part of it, truth, truth is a powerful thing. Uh, and we need to be loving in how we share the truth with others. Um, yeah, so definitely a balanced approach to truth. What? What? Anybody want to speak to that? Because I know that's a big. Yes, sir. Well, it's a John, big component. Well, what John says that um, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, you know, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. Uh huh. That's right. When we're talking to people, we're not just talking at people, but we're talking to people. Yeah. And also teaching ourselves as well. Because Paul said in Romans 2, that you who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Right. So, like, when we're teaching other people uh, the spiritual truths of the gospel, it's like, I have to teach these things to myself each day, just like yeah. you're telling me. Amen. I thought it was so good uh, in the, the film Unpopular with Paul Washer when he said at that point, somewhere in his segment, he said, um, you know, when you tell people to repent, you know, what you're telling them is, you know, you are wrong even as I have been wrong. You know what I mean? And I think that empathy is very important. I think it's very wise of God to, you know, set it up that way. You know, that we're not talking down at people, looking down their noses, right? But we're saying, hey, I'm just like you, and I need the grace of God just like you do. Yes, sir? Yeah, I remember when I uh, first came into Supervision of Public Aid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember something Christ came and said that I, I didn't listen to the Lord at the time, but it's like you, you have kind of like a bazooka. You have these nuclear strength. Uh, yeah, nuclear strength, uh, apologetics, right? <laughs> that, uh, that you're going to destroy their worldview. Yeah. So you have to be careful. Uh, 
Well, that's what Paul says, right? Second Corinthians ten five. We demolish arguments, you know, that raise up against the knowledge of God. We don't play with them. We demolish them. You know what I mean? But like he says in what is it in Timothy? What is it? Uh, yeah, he says somewhere like in the, the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to all. You know what I mean? And gentleness, correcting those who oppose the truth. You know, so that's right. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. So I also said, you know, it, we have to be balanced in our application of the truth. And what I mean by that, balanced, because notice the the scope of this. We are to grow up in all aspects. Um, we are to grow up into all aspects. And literally, in the Greek, it's literally just we are to grow up in all. So the interpretation, right, by the translators, you have to supply something. What does he mean, grow up in all, right? So he must mean every area, all things, all. I like all aspects. That's a great. That's a great translation. You know what I mean? A good interpretation of the use of this. But that's right. So in every part of the Christian life, we are called to grow and to mature, and that's why we have to be. You know, we have to be careful that we're balanced Christians, that we're not imbalanced, right? Um, you know, I had a gentleman here not too long ago that every time he came around the church, all he wanted to do was hand me something on eschatology, <laughs> you know, and like correct my eschatology, you know, like read my thing on eschatology, you know what I mean? Like every conversation was my eschatology. It's like, okay, <laughs> I know you like eschatology, but there's the Christian life too, you know, like how about you get your wife at the lady study? How about you come to Sundays? You know, you know, there's the Christian life. It's not just one thing. You know, it's every aspect of our life God wants to sanctify to Christ-likeness. Not just your eschatology. <laughs> you know, but we have to be balanced. I mean, if we're not, then we can become uh, very immature. Isn't that remarkable? I've met really theological people that are super smart. But you know what? They have terrible people skills. <laughs> they know every doctrine under the sun. But if you want to have a a, a conversation where you're looking at each other in the eye and you're having a, a discussion about marriage or family or piety, they're just not good at it, right? It's amazing how you can get imbalanced. You know, you can be so theologically minded that you are no earthly good, right? Uh, they're so heady, they would never think to hand out a track. You know what I mean? And then the opposite, you could be so practically minded that, you know, who was it? Like Martha, you're just serving, 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 right? But you never stop to commune with Christ, you know? Or you can think it's all about just the deeds that you're doing, but you don't ever take the time to really study your Bible. You know, we can get imbalanced either way. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, you're right. There's there's personality quirks, you know, that we have to account for. You know what I mean? But when it gets to the point where you minimize the importance of other areas of your Christian walk, you know what I'm saying? Where it's not as important that you learn how to become a good husband as long as you're an academic. You know what I mean? That would be an imbalance. But no, you're right. We're all different. You know what I mean? And we certainly... I mean, I'm introverted. God used me. You know what I mean? I. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You leave it to me. 
you leave it to me, brother. I'll stay in my office all night. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm fine not talking to anybody, you know. Uh, and Trish sometimes like wonders, is there something wrong with me? You know, it's just like, it's like you act like you could just be alone all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> you know, but God uses broken vessels, you know. With it. Yes, sir. Oh, Mike, I thought you had a question. You're just standing up because your back hurts like mine. Okay. Yeah. We went to we went we went to a seminary down the road here. I won't say which one. It's in Dallas. <clears throat> here comes a Trish story, right? And we were Keith, you were there too. And Trisha approached this scholar. This guy's a monster scholar. Uh, he's respected all evangelicalism, right? And she asked him. <laughs> of course, Trisha asked him. When was the last time you shared your faith? And he goes, and he goes, you know what? He goes, we have to come down out of our ivory towers, don't we? He's like, you should ask every person on this campus that question. He was rocked. And there you go. I mean, this guy has all the degrees and he's written books. He's a scholar. He is respected. He's reputable. And he doesn't remember the last time he shared his faith. That's what I mean by we can get you know, imbalance. So, you know, last thing, okay, because I know we got some other things, but the last thing is, I just want to squeeze this in here. The last thing is that maturity through being balanced in our approach to truth and then, uh, I don't even know if I spelt that right, but you get the point. Involvement, right? Being involved. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole joint, or from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I mean, that's a mouthful. That's a masterpiece of of practical theology and, and body dynamics and however you want to call it. You know, but I would say, first of all, you know, understanding just a few things, you know, like when it comes to practical involvement, I mean, we can't underestimate this. This is where now we're touching on, you know, some of the very heart and soul of practical theology. Uh, if y'all don't come in here for this class, okay, it's me and Robert. You know what I mean? I mean, we got to be involved. We have to participate. You know what I mean? And that takes, uh, you know, that takes effort. But you know how it is. You're at a small group. You're at a ladies' study or a men's study. And you have a few people there. And all of a sudden, two, three more people come. You just immediately get encouraged, right? Because, oh, praise the Lord. You know, this brother's here. This sister's here, right? Involvement is is huge. I mean, it just reminded me of what Peter says, you know, that we're living stones. We're alive. And we need each other. You know what I'm saying? And And, you know, I guess when we think about our own commitment or our shortcomings to that commitment, we should begin by remembering that church and doing church, this whole thing where we gather here, right? This is God's idea. It's not ours. I'm saying this is his idea. And remember the indicative imperative, right? So the indicative part of the letter, 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, that is where Paul says that the church is part of God's eternal decree, right? So God for all eternity has had the concept of doing church, of the whole concept of the church, the, the, the ecclesia, the assembly. Isn't that amazing? Like the most fundamental part of Christianity is being in the church, and the word church literally means to come together to assemble together, something powerful happens when the people of God assemble together. Paul, that's why Paul calls it a temple, a holy temple that's being built to the Lord, right? That's what we represent. Um, and so not just the fact that it's God's idea, but notice that the church is united by the smallest contributions. Why do I say that? Because I'm looking at that little word there, joint. Every joint well joint can be a tiny little part of your body well that's right every little part of the body matters and counts and i know you know uh paul talks about this in first corinthians chapter 12 there are more prominent parts of the body there are those maybe that are the preacher the teacher they're the they're the ones that are going to be doing more upfront stuff and then there are those that are not so honorable in other words they don't get the full display every day right but that but but listen we all need one another we cannot. And and I tell you, I mean, whatever whatever misconception I had of pastoral ministry as I came into this 10 years ago now, but of thinking that oh, this is going to be great, I'm going to preach and study and preach the word of God, right, and all of this, and it is great. But I tell you what, what is uppermost in my heart when I go to church is not the idea that I get to preach today. What's uppermost in my heart is I know that one sister is dealing with this. I know that one brother who's been straggling at the back of the, of the sheepfold, right? It's getting away from the pack, right? I know that they're struggling. That's what's on my heart. You know what I mean? That's what's heavy on my heart. And let me tell you, that far outweighs the honor of getting to preach. Because in my heart, that's what's heavy on me. You know what I mean? And And every joint is... It's like so many times, haven't you ever studied the word and you just, God reminds you, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know why I'm saying what I'm saying, right? If one member suffers, every member suffers. Every joint contributes something to the overall health of the body. And then the last two, or the last, what do I got here? Last two points is the church's efficacy and the church's love. Right, So that's what we mean by practically being involved. The church's efficacy can be seen in the word proper working. You see that? According to the proper working of each individual part, every person can either maximize their effectiveness in the body of Christ or minimize it. You should try to be the best church member that you can be. And in whatever gifting and callings that you have to try to maximize your effectiveness in the body of Christ. And in the same way, the love of the church is also important. The church is united by its love because, he says, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Everything is about that. Any last observations or questions or comments? Anything about the text that wasn't clear? Yes, sir? I just had an observation And not contribute anything 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's kind of that's kind of you know to the point that Ephesians is making, right? When he says building up of itself in love, notice that itself establishes the idea of sort of like a self-replenishing organism, right? We build ourselves up in love. You know what I'm saying? There's, in other words, there's a mutual, there's a mutual uh, reciprocation. You know, just like the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter one. Right. When he says in verse 11 and 12, when he talks about, you know, that I long to see you to impart some spiritual gift to you. What does he say? And I thought there was some sort of give and take there. Maybe, maybe not. Verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you. Right. No, no, no. Verse 11. I long to see you so that I, I may impart a spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you so there's this mutual reciprocal dynamic that has to happen in fellowship very important we're out of time so another dynamic of fellowship is being responsible so let me pray for us real quick father lord thank you again uh lord thank you for this short time of bible study we pray that you would use this only to encourage our body to build us up in the faith and give us wisdom as we proceed now with uh, practical theology and whatever else you would have us to study. Bless the rest of our worship. Father, may it be glorifying exclusively to you. In Jesus' name, amen.